Welcome to Under the Oaks. I'm Lauren Thompson. I'm Pastor Trent Sari. And we're coming to you on behalf of Western Koshkonong Lutheran Church, located in Pleasant Springs, Wisconsin, a land of swimming pools and movie stars. <laughs> so we've been going through a systematic study of the Bible, talking about the various teachings in the Bible, sort of one step at a time. We're, we're building from a logical place. We started with creation. We talked about God and the creation of man, the fall of man into sin. The potential problem with this kind of study or the potential conflict for some people is that they don't have a context in which to understand a lot of these things. So it might just seem like a bunch of disjointed teachings. And obviously that's not the case. When we read the Bible, we see that these things take place within the context of a narrative, of a story. God's plan of salvation, how he carried that out amongst his people, and his fulfillment of those promises in the person of Jesus Christ. So periodically throughout this course, uh, we'll spend some time building a timeline, a very, very simplistic timeline of a Bible history. A lot of people today in our world are fairly biblically illiterate. You know, a few generations ago, most everybody had read their Bible at one point or another, at least had tried to get through the entire Bible. But we want to at least touch on some of the main parts so you have an, a framework, an idea of where these things fit in. So that's what we're going to start off doing today. We're going to take a brief outline of Bible history from roughly the time of Adam up until about the time of Moses. So without further ado, we're going to go back to creation all the way up to about 2000 BC today. We know that Adam and Eve were created perfect and holy and they, they lived happily in the Garden of Eden. We talked about how they were tempted by the devil, how Adam and Eve fell into sin, and how that sin separated them from God. But right away in that account in Genesis chapter 3, we see that God gives them the very first promise of the Savior. He says that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And then uh, Adam and Eve are cast out of that garden, out of Eden. Eventually, Eve believes her firstborn that she gives birth to is the promised Savior, the one that God had told them about, and she calls him Cain. Unfortunately, in time, uh, she learns how wrong she had it. In fact, Cain kills his brother Abel. And as the human race multiplies, people become so wicked that God decides to destroy them. So he sends a flood that covers the whole world at the time of Noah. And only Noah and his family, that is eight people in all, survive in an ark, which Noah built at the direction of God. Of Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Shem, the father of the Semitic races, is chosen as ancestor of the promised Savior. With the growth of the world's population, wickedness again increases and comes to a head when men attempt to work against God's command to fill the earth and instead they decide to build a great city uh, known as Babel in order to make a name for themselves, the scriptures say. So God comes down and he confuses their languages. Remember that until now, there was only one language, and he scatters the people all over the earth. And this is really for their good. I think it's important that we point out that, I mean, it sounds like a, a harsh judgment, which there's certainly discipline involved, but it's really for their own good. We talk about the age of the patriarchs, which lasts roughly from about 2000 BC to about 1700 BC. There we see that God calls Abraham 
who is a descendant of Shem, and he tells him to go to the land of Canaan, which he has chosen for his descendants. He also tells him that the promised Savior will come from his descendants. Uh, this is an important point. When we talk about God's covenant with Abraham, I think it's important that we understand uh, what that was. That term covenant in our day and age kind of has this connotation of a two-party contract. If you do your part, I'll do my part, and we're in mutual agreement. We have a covenant with one another. Uh, that's actually not the kind of covenant that is described here that God makes with Abraham. In fact, the words that are chosen are very different words. It would be something more akin to uh, like a last will and testament. It's an unconditional promise that God makes to Abraham. It's a one-sided, unilateral covenant, if you will. So, and that covenant went like this. God said, basically, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the sands on the seashore and stars in the sky. I'm going to give you a land. And in your seed, singular, that would be the promised Savior, all nations on earth will be blessed. However, when God made that promise to Abraham and his wife, they were childless and uh, they were also getting fairly old. Years later, God repeats his promise and announces to the 99-year-old Abraham and the 90-year-old Sarah that within a year, they will have a son. And then he gives them the sign of circumcision. From now on, a pledge of God's covenant with his people, and he institutes that. Uh, even circumcision, I think we have to be careful. Uh, you know, a lot of times people would say, well, circumcision was Abraham's mark of obedience. It's how he showed his obedience to God. And when you actually read the account, it's not, that's not true. It basically, God makes a promise, a unilateral promise with no conditions and says, I'm going to do all these things. And then he says, as a sign or a seal of this covenant, I give you circumcision. So Abraham and his descendants would be marked physically to, to demonstrate that this, they are God's chosen people. It's God's promise. That's what makes them who they are. It's not their obedience. Of course, you know, that's not to say that they shouldn't obey God by any means, but in terms of circumcision, it was not just an outward sign that showed somehow that they were obedient to God. Uh, obviously, this will come into, back into play when we talk later on about the sacraments of the New Testament. So from uh, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac is born, and God declares that his son is to be the ancestor of the promised Savior. Later, God tests Abraham's faith by commanding him to sacrifice Isaac. And of course, uh, many people are familiar with that account. Abraham does not hesitate, and he's about to slay his child when the angel of the Lord appears on the scene. And the angel of the Lord is an interesting topic all unto itself. In the Old Testament, we see numerous appearances of not just an angel of the Lord, but a specific, the angel of the Lord. And it becomes obvious when we look at Exodus 3, it's the angel of the Lord that appears to Moses in the burning bush and so on, that this is not a created spirit being like the other angels that we talked about in past episodes, that this angel is in fact God uh, who can forgive sins and so on. So historically in the church, they would see the references to the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament as appearances of the pre-incarnate Christ, that is, Christ before he took on human flesh. Remember, we say that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, has always existed. He's eternal with the Father. Yes, he takes on human flesh in time when he's born of the Virgin Mary, but certainly he's always been around. And, you know, some people will ask, well, 
If that's true, where was he during Old Testament times? Well, remember, he is the Word made flesh. He was there at creation. He's that creative Word through which God created all things. Uh, But he also makes some of these appearances as the angel of the Lord, if you will. Abraham, uh, the father of the faithful, is blessed by God and once more receives the promise of the Savior. Now, in that account with Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac, where he's about to, it's interesting where Isaac asks Abraham, he says, you know, Dad, basically, you know, where's the, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham's reply was more prophetic than he could have probably ever understood. He says, God himself will provide the lamb or the sacrifice. And of course, he does. Years later, John the Baptist will point that out. He'll say, ah, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Isaac goes on to marry, and his wife, Rebekah, gives birth to twin sons. The father prefers Esau, the firstborn, but Jacob is chosen by God to be the ancestor of the promised Savior. Of course, you know, there's fascinating stories, and there are a lot to talk about as well that we're just glossing over. We're giving you a, a Reader's Digest version Uh, just the very rudimentary skeleton of this narrative that runs through those first books of the Bible. Rebekah and Jacob deceive Isaac into giving Jacob the blessing rather than Esau, and that includes the promise of the Savior. So even through some trickery and deceit, God carries out his plan, and uh, the seed promised Savior will come through Jacob rather than Esau. Esau is enraged about this, so Jacob flees to his uncle Laban, and on the way he has a vision of a heavenly ladder from the top of which God himself repeats the promise of the Savior. So again, we see that promise made to Adam and Eve way back in the garden being reiterated to each generation, uh, maybe even becoming a little bit more specific as we go along, right? We're seeing who it's going to come through, what bloodline it's going to come through. After serving Laban for 20 years, Jacob is now a rich man and the father of a large family. He returns home, and as he nears his homeland, he wrestles with none other than the angel of the Lord until he obtains the victory and with it a blessing and the name Israel. Jacob has 12 sons. His son Joseph is sold by his jealous brothers into slavery in Egypt. Horrible incident, uh, you know, betrayed by his brothers. Uh, all of these events, though, if, if you want to uh, think about it, are incredibly significant because we have pictures of what God is going to do through his promised Savior, his son, Jesus Christ, in some of these events as well. We could say that Joseph was a foreshadowing, a type, if you will, of Jesus. You might say, well, how? That seems like a stretch. Well, remember, he's sort of betrayed by his brethren. Jesus himself was betrayed by God's own people, the Jews. And through that hardship, which seemed like a terrible time, Joseph goes down to Egypt. Things go from bad to worse. He's put in prison. God has given him this ability to interpret dreams. And again, it seems at times things are going to get better. Uh, They get worse. He's in prison, but eventually he ends up rising to power second only to Pharaoh in all of Egypt. And this in turn would end up being a blessing not only for Joseph, but for his entire family, even the ones who had betrayed him, just like Christ's death ends up being a blessing for all people, even 
paying for the sins of those who had betrayed him. So at that time, there was a prolonged famine that set in in the land of Canaan. Uh, but under Joseph, grain has been stored up in Egypt during the preceding good years. And Jacob's family, having no food, is brought to Egypt. And they are welcomed and even given the rich land of Goshen. Before Jacob's death, his son Judah is designated as the ancestor of the promised Savior. Now, at the end of the book of Genesis, uh, there's this sort of tearful reunion with Joseph and his brothers. And then when their father dies, there's a little bit of concern amongst the brothers about whether Joseph is now going to take his revenge on them for what they had done to him years earlier. And uh, there's a beautiful passage in there where Joseph basically says, look, you intended this for harm, but God intended it for good. And, you know, what a beautiful picture of, of how God turns all things for our eternal good. It, you know, Joseph had every reason to take revenge, and certainly they, they were probably right in expecting it. But Joseph saw the bigger picture, that God's hand was in all of it, working all things for their good. So now we come to the time from about Israel's bondage to their deliverance from Egypt and then the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. So we're talking about the time period between 1700 to about 1490 BC. After years of peace and growth, a pharaoh or a ruler who does not remember Joseph seeks to weaken the rapidly increasing Israelites by making them slaves, cruelly overworking them and finally ordering every male child killed. At this time, Moses is born. He's placed by his mother into a basket and placed among the reeds near the riverbank. Pharaoh's daughter finds the baby and adopts him. Obviously, this is all part of God's providence, right? This wasn't just a random chance happening. One day, while trying to protect one of his countrymen, Moses, this is obviously 40 years later, he's 40 years old, he kills an Egyptian and is forced to flee. When Moses is 80, God appears to him in a burning bush and commands him to lead Israel out of Egypt. Accompanied by his brother Aaron, Moses goes to Pharaoh and he demands the release of his people. And of course, that's a, a real interesting exchange there. Pharaoh would harden his heart. Moses and Aaron perform mighty signs and wonders. Some of Pharaoh's magicians were able to simulate or, or duplicate some of those things, but not all of them. And after that, God sent 10 plagues. And finally, after the last one, Pharaoh consents. Before the final plague, God institutes the Passover. Remember, that's kind of the, the last of the plagues. It's the death of the firstborn. And every Israelite household, a male lamb is to be killed. Its blood is to be painted on the doorposts. And its flesh roasted whole in the fire is eaten with unleavened bread. The Passover hereafter celebrated annually. Certainly, here's another picture that pointed forward to Christ, who is our Passover lamb. Remember, just as those uh, Israelites had blood sprinkled on their doorposts, and so they were spared from death, the angel of death that went through the land of Egypt, so it is the blood of Christ, our Passover lamb, painted on us, so to speak, that spares us from eternal death. Now, during the observance of the first Passover, the angel of the Lord passes over the blood-marked homes of the Israelites, but kills the firstborn son of every Egyptian family. So that, that idea of Passover actually has a double meaning. 
on the one hand, there's judgment for those in Egypt. On the other hand, there's salvation for those who are safely in their houses, who've been marked by the blood of the Lamb. And so, again, once again, you have this picture of our salvation. It's only those who are safe in the house of the church, having their doorposts painted with the blood of Christ, our Passover Lamb, that are saved from eternal death. Obviously, after this, Pharaoh finally begged Israel to leave. Now, they had become a mighty people. They had grown great in number. There was probably two million people plus, and Israelites begin their journey towards the promised land, guided by God, who, who leads them in a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. When Pharaoh pursues them, God opens a dry lane for them through the Red Sea, but he causes the water to drown the pursuing Egyptian army. Feeding his murmuring people with manna and quail, he leads them to Mount Sinai. And here God gives his law to Moses. The moral law, which told what God required for moral behavior. We think about the Ten Commandments in this regard. But there was more. There's other aspects of the law given here. There was the ceremonial law, which pertained to the forms of Jewish worship. So it dictated what sacrifices were to be made and so on and so forth. But there was also a civil law by which the Jewish state was to be governed. And here you'd have specifics about if somebody committed this crime, here's what the punishment should be. And here's where you come up with that phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which oftentimes people take out of context because they have no clue the context into which, you know, those words were, were set. And, uh, you know, people will sometimes say, well, the Old Testament God was a vengeful, you know, wrathful God, but the New Testament God is loving That's not true. They'll say the Old Testament is law. The New Testament is gospel. That's not true. Uh, We see God's mercy and his grace throughout the Old Testament. We see the gospel promise all the way back from Genesis on. But here that civil law certainly told them, you know, if somebody commits this particular crime, here's what the the punishment should be. And we would say, you know, that's that's no different in our society. If somebody commits, uh, you know, a heinous murder, they might have to go through the death penalty. You know, if somebody steals chapstick at the local gas station, they're probably not going to get the death penalty because the punishment really wouldn't fit the crime. But that's where where that comes from. Returning from Sinai, where he had been with God for 40 days, Moses finds his people worshiping a golden calf. He breaks the tables of the law on the ground. He burns the calf, grinds it into powder, mixes it with water, and makes the Israelite drink it. It's amazing how quickly... They had seen this miraculous deliverance from God during the Passover. They had walked through the parted seas, and already they're falling to idolatry. Yeah, they forgot their recent history yeah. at that point. It just happened. It, you know, if that's not an example of how nearsighted and how short-sighted human, the sinful human nature is, I don't know what is. And, you know, it's easy to be critical of them and say, well, how could they do that? But it's that same sinful nature that clings to all of us as well. After 3,000 idolaters have been executed, God once more writes the Ten Commandments on two stone tablets, and he gives them to Moses. So that's kind of our our brief Bible history lesson, if you will. Very condensed. Very condensed. It's the Reader's Digest version, I always say. And there's a lot more that could be said. All of these stories deserve, you know, a careful meditation and reading. Um, but we will, com- we will 
pick up on this Bible history at a later time, and we'll continue with it. So it's good, at least it gives us a little bit of a context. When we think about those gospel promises that we come across in in the early parts of the Old Testament, it's a reminder that this was always God's plan to send a Savior. And obviously some of the main prophecies concerning the coming Savior during this period, uh, we pointed out a little bit earlier, Genesis 3.15, where God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In Genesis 12, God says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Genesis 22, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Again, the promises God makes to Abraham. At the end of the book of Genesis, we hear that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So again, uh, already within Genesis, there's this constant forward looking to the, the fulfillment of that promise of a Savior. And all believers understood that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. This was a point that was very obvious to all of them, and that's why they looked forward to the coming Savior. And Job, Job lived probably at the time of the patriarchs like Abraham. We don't know exactly when he lived, but judging on the historical context of the book of Job, I mean, and he's living in in family clan units and he's predominantly a farmer or shepherd herder kind of, and uh, he's making sacrifices for his own people. There's no priesthood yet and so on and so forth. But way back in the time of Job, we hear Job confess his faith in the coming Savior in these terms. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And he says, Behold, my eyes will see him, mine and not another's. So from all of these things, we learn that the two outstanding factors in the early history of the world are man's sin against the law of God and God's grace as revealed in the gospel of the promised Savior. And these two teachings, law and gospel, you could really say are the main teachings of the Bible. And I would even go a step further. As Lutherans, we, we, we really talk a lot about the proper distinction and distinguishing between law and gospel. If you don't properly understand the difference, if you don't know how to identify them, it's very easy to misunderstand the entire Bible. So we're going to talk a little bit about what is the law, what is the gospel, what's the difference between those two things. And in many ways, this will aid us as we read our own Bibles. It'll give us a hermeneutic, if you will, a principle of Bible interpretation that aids us in trying to understand God's message to us in in the Bible. So without further ado, what is the law? Well, uh, the law in a certain sense tells us what God wants for our lives. And that can be in positive terms, do this, or it can also be in negative terms, don't do that. So for instance, Leviticus 19, 2, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. So that's what God's will is for our lives. You shall be holy. And of course, in in the book of Exodus, we see many, you shall do this and also you shall not do that. So obviously we think about the 10 commandments, right? as a sort of summary of the moral law. The law is that teaching of the Bible in which God tells us how we're to be and what we are to do and what we are not to do. So generally, those kind of statements come across as imperatives. You know, stop it, don't do that, that kind of thing. 
but uh, not not always. Uh, sometimes it, it reads you know slightly differently. In, in for my confirmation students, a lot of times I'll say the easiest way to remember the distinction between law and gospel is by using the acronym SOS. So everybody knows what an SOS signal is. It's you know a ship in distress sends out an SOS. But in terms of the law, there's an SOS, and that SOS is this: the law shows our sins. It reveals to us our sinfulness. It reveals how far we've fallen short of the glory of God and his will for our lives. The gospel, on the other hand, shows us our Savior. Rather than telling us what to do and what not to do, it tells us what God has done on our behalf in his Son, Jesus Christ. So, for instance, when we come across uh, gospel passages, such as 1 John 4, 9, it says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. So it tells us what God has done, his work, not ours. John 3.16, obviously everybody knows John 3.16, the gospel in a nutshell. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So again, it tells us what God has done to accomplish our salvation. And this becomes really the most important message that we can possibly hear. As St. Paul would say in his letter to the Romans, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, gospel simply means good news. Uh, And this is really the epitome of good news for sinful, fallen humanity. We've created a gulf between our creator. We've condemned ourselves to hell and eternal punishment. And yet God steps in and he does it all for us by sending his son who pays for our sins on the cross, who lives perfectly righteous under God's holy law where you and I have not. And then he sends this message out of this completed salvation. He packs into it the forgiveness of sins and eternal life and he distributes it through his church. He says, you know, go proclaim the good news to all creation. Proclaim the gospel to all creation. So, It's in this sense that we know that the gospel is not a dead letter. It's not just a history lesson about what God did. It's a living and active word of God. It's a spirit-filled word of God, which brings us all the treasures that Christ has won for us, forgiveness, life, and salvation. And therefore, it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. So the gospel is that teaching of the Bible about the good news of our salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, Again, I said the distinction between law and gospel is really important for us in practical terms because if we confuse the two, we really mess things up. We turn Jesus into a new Moses who has basically come to give us a new set of rules to follow so that we can try to earn our way to heaven. Right. And that's obviously not what the gospel is. Or, you know, I hear a lot of people saying, well, you got to do the gospel as if it's, it's a list of things that we do. The gospel is about what God has done. Right, and that's that's complete misunderstanding of the difference. Yep. And the law obviously reveals God's will to us. So, you know, the law stands, it shows us what sin is. And some people, uh, by confusing these two, they almost turn the gospel into a license to sin. It doesn't matter what I do because Jesus forgives me, therefore, as if the law no longer applies. So we're going to go through some statements and we're going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put Lauren on the spot, and I'm going to ask him Uh-oh. whether it's law or gospel. And some of these are tricky. I mean, so 
maybe I'll, I'll, I don't want Lauren to look bad, so I'll make sure that he has the right answer. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, so for instance, we come across passages in the scripture. There was a lawyer who came and tested Jesus and says, you know, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus basically says, well, what's the law? How do you read it? He says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, oh, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Right. Do this and you'll live. Is that a statement of law or gospel? Law. It is law. It, it says, if you do this, you will live. And that's what the law says. The problem is... We can't. We don't and we can't. So this lawyer sought to justify himself and he thought that the law was the means to do it. He asked a question of Jesus and Jesus answered him, on those terms. You know, according to the law, what do I need to do? Well, love God perfectly, love your neighbor perfectly. Okay, that's simple. All right, see you later. That's easy. No. Uh, Unfortunately, in our world, sometimes you get the impression that this is what a lot of people think. How do you get to heaven? Well, I try to be a good person. I try to live according to the Ten Commandments. Even, Even to a certain extent, the what would Jesus do movement that was so popular years ago it tends to be a law-based thing because if we really answer the question, what would Jesus do? The answer is he would do the right thing every time, all the time. And I, I can't do it. Yeah. How do you measure up? So what would what would Jesus do in, in a certain sense becomes a preaching of the law. It shows you that you you failed miserably. Right. You can't do it. I mean, not that it's a not that it's a bad reminder. Obviously, as Christians, we always want to be thinking of the example that Jesus set. Uh, you know, he didn't repay evil with evil. And all of those things. Um, But on the other hand, when it comes to our salvation, what would Jesus do doesn't offer us any hope or consolation. So the next, uh, we think about Jesus' words from the cross when he cried out, it is finished. Law or gospel? Gospel. Definitely gospel, right? It doesn't put any conditions. It doesn't say, if you just do this, then it'll be finished. Or he doesn't say, I've done my part. Now it's up to you to do yours. Right. Says, now you have to figure it out. Yeah. To telestai. It's it's finished. It's accomplished. It's done. We have these words written in Norwegian on our altar painting, below our altar painting at our, at our church here. And I won't try pronouncing it because I'll probably mess it up and then all the Norwegians. <laughs> I won't either. Our, our massive Norwegian uh, you know, audience would probably have to correct me well, on that. And I'm sure they will. That's right. First Peter chapter 1, verse 5. By God's power, you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Law or gospel? Gospel. Gospel. You're 100% here, Lauren. So, by God's power, you are being guarded. So, again, it talks about what God has done, not what we are doing. By God's power, you're being guarded. Romans 3.20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And this is maybe a little bit more uh, difficult to discern. Well, is this, it doesn't really say I have to do anything, but is it describing law or gospel here? Law. Law, yeah. You know, by the works of the law, no human being will be declared righteous in God's sight. That's really what the point is. And and it's not, you can do as good as you can. That's not what it means. You have to do it perfectly. Right. And and the, the second part is even more important. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the law serves a function. It, it shows us our sinfulness. It shows us our need for a savior. That's what the law does. 
It was given because of sin for that very reason. So it serves a very important point. But people completely mess this up. They they think that the law is the way that you get to heaven. You right. try to you try to follow the Ten Commandments. People always say, put the Ten Commandments back outside the courthouses and all that stuff. And I'm not opposed to it on, on a certain level. I mean, I think it's good that people know what God's will is for our lives. But it doesn't change people. The law doesn't change people. The law makes criminals. The law convicts you. The law shows what we do wrong. Yeah, the law condemns you. It doesn't make you a better person. Only the gospel can do that. Now, certainly we don't say it's a bad thing. I mean, because it is God's will for our lives. And we, we certainly, we want to pay attention to that. And we want to respect that. And it's certainly a good thing. The law is good. And God's will is good for us. But if we think that somehow through this law, we can gain heaven then we've completely missed the point. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And again, this is another passage that's more descriptive. But would you say that this tends to be more uh, law or gospel? I would lean law. It is law. Yeah. It talks about the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Well, have you and I been unrighteous and ungodly according to the law? Yeah, yeah definitely. That, that we are convicted. We are uh, guilty in that regard. And who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, John 1.29, I mentioned this earlier, the words of John the Baptist who points to Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I would hope nobody gets this wrong, but law or gospel? Gospel. Gospel. You're batting a thousand here, Lauren. Very good. So yeah, I mean, obviously it doesn't put any conditions on us. It points us to God, specifically to Christ. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world by living perfectly in our stead as our substitute and dying the death that we deserved. It's by his blood that we have the forgiveness of sins and are washed clean. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Again, if anybody gets this wrong, <laughs> they should probably go back and, and listen to the first few episodes. Right, again. right, go back and redo. So law or gospel? Gospel. Gospel, Absolutely. Uh, you know, I don't know if you can articulate the gospel much clearer, right? Right. God's grace, his undeserved love and mercy. This is how you've been saved, through faith. And even this faith, it's not your doing. It is a gift of God so that no one can boast. So it's all gift. It's all grace. It's obviously gospel. This is good news for us. Matthew 19, verses 16 17. A man came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, If you would enter life, keep the commandments. So, uh, again, we have another question. A, a man says, basically, what do I have to do? Law. Yeah. So, he already phrases the question in the context of the law. If we don't understand that, Jesus' answer seems strange to us, right? Well, you know, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Okay. Sounds like Jesus is pointing to the commandments for life. No, he is answering the man's question on his own terms. Right. What do I have to do? Well, keep the law. Keep the law. And, uh, you know, if, if you're concerned about what you have to do, that's the standard. And Jesus even would say, you know, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, that's the standard of the law. It doesn't say try your best and God will do the rest. It doesn't say 
as long as you're getting better than you used to be, that's good enough. Or as long as you're better than your neighbor over across the street, right. you know, that's good enough. No, it's not a relative thing. This is all or nothing. Uh, if you're guilty of breaking one part of it, you're guilty of all of it. You've become a lawbreaker. I might say, well, what's my criminal record? Well, you know, I, I've got a completely clean criminal record. Well, except for that one time where I got caught shoplifting or something. I, this is not real. I'm just using this as an example. <laughs> the news is out. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be all over the internet, right? <laughs> uh, so, but in that sense, you have a record. You are a criminal. You have a criminal record. You can't say, I have a clean record. I mean, you did it once. Even if you did it once and it was 30 years ago, you you have a criminal right, record. Right. Or even if you jaywalked and you didn't get caught. Yeah, right. Well, I, I didn't get caught, so that was okay. Right. You're still You're still a criminal. So... Obviously, this is a statement of law. I mean, I, I don't think I need to ask you that. You know, do this, and you know, keep the commandments if you'd enter life. Well, obviously, that's that's that Jesus holds out the mirror of the law to this person. Now, in the book of Acts, Paul and Silas are in prison. They're singing hymns at night. This is a great account in Acts chapter sixteen. But uh, eventually, I think this is where the doors get thrown open. The jailer sees everything that's gone on and he's worried for his life because he thinks everybody's going to walk out and then he's going to get killed, something to that effect. After he witnesses all of these miraculous things, he basically comes to Paul and Silas and says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And we talked about that question in an early episode, uh, but their answer we didn't hear at that time and their answer is really what we want to focus on now. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Law or gospel? Well, I think the jailer is looking from a law standpoint, but but Paul and Silas are from a gospel standpoint. Absolutely. Yep. So some people will say, well, I have to be the one who believes. Isn't that me doing something? Isn't that right. a statement of law? Because we hear some of these, uh, we would call gospel imperatives in the New Testament where, you know, believe the good news. Uh, but understanding that it's these words of the gospel that actually bring what they say and that it's God who creates faith through it, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. We recognize that this is not our work. This is God, again, doing the work through his word, enabling us to do the very thing that the word says. Believe the good news. Believe in the Lord Jesus, what he did for you, God's work, not yours, and you'll be saved, you and your whole household. So this is gospel. So from these examples, we'll just talk a little bit more about the distinction, the difference between law and gospel. The law teaches us what we are to do and not to do, as I said. The gospel teaches what God has done and what he still does for our salvation. The law shows us our sin and the anger or wrath of God. The gospel shows us our Savior and the grace and love and mercy of God. The law must be preached to all people, especially to sinners who are unrepentant, who are not sorry for their sins. The gospel must be preached to sinners who are troubled by their sins. So, you know, in that sense, um, we sometimes talk about three different ways that God uses the law. And by law here, I'm talking about the moral law, not the civil law, and uh, you know, not the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. Especially we're talking about the moral law, the Ten Commandments. How does God use that for our good? Well, in a general sense, we talked about this a little bit when we talked about conscience, that the moral law was written on man's heart at creation. Obviously, the fall into sin, that's lost. Conscience is somewhat of a remnant of that. So, in, in a certain sense, Paul can say that 
the Gentiles have the law written on their hearts, their conscience accusing them. So this idea of the conscience uh, says that in a general sense, the law serves as a curb. It curbs gross outbreaks of sin in the world. So it keeps people from just walking around murdering each other constantly. And not to say that these things don't happen, but in a general sense, it keeps the world from being complete anarchy. It's not right to steal. It's not right to take your your neighbor's you know wife or husband or something like that. That's you know the the first use the way that God uses the law. The second way that God uses the law, and this would be the the main way, is as a mirror. When the law is held up in front of our face, it shows every single one of our imperfections. If we're willing to look into the law truthfully and see it on its own standard, none of us have loved God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, not perfectly, and none of us have loved our neighbor as ourselves. And therefore, the law, like a mirror, you know, it shows us every blemish on our face or whatever imperfection, shows us the gray hairs as we get older. Uh, we don't like the, the mirror. Same way we don't like the law. We don't like the law because it tells us we're, we're bad, right. that we're not good. Right. We'd rather believe we're good. And so we try to twist and distort the law. Well, that's no longer sinful. People try to downplay the standard of the law. Or, it's really not that bad. It's, it's, you know, it's different now than it used to be or right. you know, whatever they say. Or they don't look at themselves very realistically. Right. Well, you know, yeah, I know I'm not perfect, but, you know, I'm a, I'm a good person. I, I love my family. I love my friends. Well, do you love your enemies? Right. Do you love those who hate you? Well, and if you convince yourself that you're not under the law and that doesn't matter to you, then you don't need the gospel. Right. Remember the, the sin of Adam and Eve, you know, knowing good and evil, in essence, in a certain sense, it was them wanting to decide for themselves what's good and evil. God's law very definitively tells us this is sin. Don't do this. Do this. So there's that positive and that negative side. We can sin by what we do, what we don't do, and we can sin in thought, word, and deed. But ultimately, it's God who sets the standard. We don't get to make things up that are sinful that aren't. So we don't want to say more than what the Bible says. You know, some people will say, well, you can't drink alcohol. If you're a Christian, you can't drink any alcohol. That's not what the Bible says. Right. We certainly don't want to add to it. Right. Certainly, you know, the Bible condemns drunkenness or being a drunkard, that kind of thing. But it doesn't say you can't have any alcohol. So that would be going beyond what the law states. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did. They built up a law, uh, in sort of a wall around God's law. And they figured if they, if they uh, really took the time and, and made all these other laws, then they wouldn't even come close to breaking God's law. More is even better. Right. But what they failed to realize is that the law doesn't just condemn our actions, uh, you know, what we do and what we don't do. It condemns our heart. Out of the heart comes adulteries and murders and falsehoods and all these things. Mm -hmm. And so the law, you know, when Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount especially, rather than soft-pedaling the law, he shows the full extent of it. You know, if you've ever looked at a person lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart with them. If you've hated your brother, you're a murderer. Right. And you kind of go, oh, well, if that's the case, then I guess the law condemns me too. Right. That's the mirror of the law. Now, those first two ways that God uses the law, we would say, apply to all people as a curb and as a mirror. There is a way that also God uses the law in the life of a believer. And we would say, in this sense, it serves as a guide. As believers in Christ, we are a new creation. We have new desires, new impulses. We want to do what is God-pleasing. And in this sense, the law tells us what that looks like. 
So it serves an important function. It doesn't necessarily give us the power to carry it out. The gospel does that. But it tells us. So I would compare this to having a GPS. GPSs are outdated unless you have it on your phone, I suppose, now. We used to, everybody used to have their own separate GPS they put in their window. The Garmin's and all this stuff. You can probably go to Goodwill and find a million of those nowadays. Well, they're still out there, yeah. Uh, but anyways, if you, if you set in your coordinates and you say, well, I want to get to so, such and such a place, then it would start and it would tell you, you know, go up two streets, take a right, and, and so on and so forth. It, it doesn't get you there, but it shows you the way, right? It, right. Tells you, it tells you which turns to take. And as believers who want to serve God, who've been brought into his kingdom through faith in his son, who've been redeemed, and who have new desires and impulses because of the Holy Spirit at work in us, the law gives us that that picture. I want to do do what's right in God's eyes. I want to serve God. Okay, here's here it is. Now, that being said, the idea of the curb applying to believers only, unfortunately, it's not that simple because although we are a new creation in Christ, we still bear a sinful nature. So in that sense, even as Christians, the law applies to us in all three ways that God uses it. It'll always be a mirror that shows us our sinfulness and need of redemption, need of a savior. It'll always show us how we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So it never stops doing that. It never stops condemning us. It never stops accusing us. Yes, it finds its fulfillment in Christ. And in Christ, we are freed from the accusations of the law. The guilt of our sin has been paid for. Nevertheless, this is still God's standard for our moral conduct. It's his will for our lives. So we don't say it's bad, uh, but we certainly can never fulfill it perfectly. Only Jesus can. And so even as Christians, we have to confess that the law as a mirror shows us that we have not lived up to God's standard for our lives. Well, all of this being said now, we've been talking about law and gospel. We're going we're gonna to move a little bit more specifically into the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and I think a lot of people think they know the Ten Commandments fairly well. And as we go through this, I think people will probably say, wow, I didn't realize that the commandments were so all-encompassing. Here it seemed like a simple, I just got to respect my parents, you know, I shouldn't cheat on my spouse, that kind of thing. And we think, oh, well, those things don't apply to me. You know, I, I, I'm not guilty of the Sixth Commandment. I'm not guilty of, you know, the Fourth Commandment or something like that. And when we go through it, you'll see that not only have we broken the first three commandments, we've broken all of them. Every single one of us has broken all of them. And so we're going to take some time and we're going to explore the commandments one at a time. And we hope that you'll join us next time on Under the Oaks.